0: Today's episode is brought to you by A Wild Promise, an illustrated celebration of the Endangered Species Act, in which acclaimed artist Alan Crawford beautifully illustrates over 80 animals that embody the spirit, legacy, and commitment of the Endangered Species Act. In his trademark inventive style, Crawford's full-color illustrations and illuminated text create a vibrant tapestry of our nation's habitats and the varied species that call these places home and are accompanied by a powerful and moving introduction by award-winning writer and conservationist Terry Tempest Williams, says Richard Louvre, In our 11th hour, the art of Alan Crawford and the words of Terry Tempest Williams offer witness and warning this gentle, strong book marks this moment of peril and promise. A Wild Promise is out on July 11th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. The episodes of the show where I feel like I get to explore and learn and grapple with mainly new material for me, whether the status of African languages with Gugi Watiango or the legacy of the century-long debt Haiti was forced to pay France for liberating themselves from property to human beings with Miriam Chancy. These episodes are often the ones that stick with me the most. And today's episode with Isabella Hamad is one of those episodes. A conversation that sticks with me not only because her new book, Enter Ghost, is an unforgettable novel, but also because I got to explore the history of Palestinian theater and how the history of theater intersects and reflects the history and contemporary moment of the people themselves, how political theater and the theatricality of politics speak to each other, and how vital creating spaces where art can bloom is to being able to live in the impossible now and to envision an otherwise Because of this, there are just a ton of references and recommendations collected in the email that accompanies today's episode for supporters of Between the Covers. All listeners who become listener supporters get the resource email with each episode, and all supporters can also join our brainstorm of future guests that plays a big role in shaping each year's roster of writers. And then there are a lot of other potential things to choose from, including the Tin House Early Readership Program, where you receive 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to the Bonus Audio Archive, which is full of readings and long-form interviews with translators and craft talks and more. And Isabella contributes a reading of a letter written by the Palestinian political prisoner Walid Daka who has been in prison for nearly 40 years and was recently denied parole despite his cancer diagnosis. This letter is translated by Dalia Taha into English, and this letter has yet to be published in English though according to Isabella it is finding some interest now from publishers. This letter was written 20 years into his captivity and in 2014 a Haifa-based Palestinian playwright produced a theatrical version of this letter. The letter and the play, both called Parallel Time. And when it was staged at the Al-Midan Theater, the Israeli culture minister froze federal funding for the theater, defunding it and threatening its ability to continue. This is the world of Isabel Hamad's new book, Enter Ghost a world of coming together to create a shared space of art making, where doing so is by its very nature political and powerful. To learn how to subscribe to the bonus audio and about the other potential benefits of joining the Between the Covers community, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now without further ado, Today's conversation with Isabella Hamad.
1: These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
0: I think stories kind of like, have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them
2: artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds in the silences
0: i believe in the role of literature is
1: as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and and, and new forms of, of thinking all the stuff i'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin
0: good morning and welcome to between the covers i'm david neyman your host Today's guest, British-Palestinian novelist Isabella Hamad, grew up in London, studied English at Oxford, did a graduate fellowship in literature at Harvard, and an MFA in creative writing at NYU. Her debut novel, The Parisian, set in early 20th century Palestine, at the end of Ottoman rule and at the beginning of the British Mandate, announced an important new voice both in Palestinian literature and in the literature of the Anglophone world. The Parisian was the winner of the 2019 Palestine Book Award, the Sue Kaufman Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and named a Best Book of the Year by everyone from LitHub to Vogue to Amazon. Zadie Smith says of Hamad's debut, The Parisian is a sublime reading experience, delicate, restrained, surpassingly intelligent, uncommonly poised, and truly beautiful. It is realism in the tradition of Flaubert and Stendhal. Everything that happens feels not so much imagined as ordained. That this remarkable historical epic should be the debut of a writer in her mid-twenties seems impossible, yet it's true. Isabella Hamad is an enormous talent, and her book is a wonder. And it seems that people agree with Zadie Smith. Hamad is a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, named in the once-a-decade grant-a-list of best young British novelists, whose judges included Rachel Cusk and passed-between-the-covers guest Helen Oyeyemi. She's a Lannan Foundation fellow. Her writing has appeared everywhere from Conjunctions to the Paris Review to the New York Times. And her story, Mr. Kanan, won the 2019 O. Henry Prize and the 2018 Plimpton Prize for fiction. Isabella Hamad is here today to talk about her latest, much anticipated follow up to The Parisian, Enter Ghost, a book set in contemporary Palestine and Israel, one that follows a Palestinian theater group aiming to put on a production of Hamlet in the West Bank, with starred reviews from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and named an editor's choice by the New York Times, Namwale Serpell says, Enter Ghost is a masterful, deeply convincing portrait of the all-too-real consequences of political theater in both senses, a moving and important novel that presses upon the urgent question of how we ought to live in the midst of the rubble and ongoing chaos of political crisis. Leila Abulela adds, Aesthetically, intellectually, emotionally, and culturally satisfying. It is astonishing but true that Isabella Hamad is incapable of striking a false note. She immerses her heroine in volatile territory with the accuracy, compassion, and coolness of a surgical knife sliding into a diseased body. The result is a stunning beauty, an eye-opening, uplifting novel that grants its vulnerable cast and their endeavors a rare and graceful dignity. Finally, Lily Meyer for the New York Times says, Enter ghost, though contemporary, is thoroughly infused with Palestine's past, and thoroughly haunted by Sonia's. Hamad, who is both a delicate writer and an exact one, intertwines the two, taking care to give Sonia as many personal ghosts, as she does historical ones. Indeed, the novel seems to argue real growth and connection, both political and personal, cannot begin until everyone's ghosts have emerged from hiding. Art is, if nothing else, a powerful tool for coaxing them out. Welcome to Between the Covers, Isabella Hamad.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I was intrigued by the way Robin Cresswell of the New York Review of Books framed his review of your first book, The Parisian. He starts with a quote from Edward Said that goes, the striking thing about Palestinian prose and prose fiction is its formal instability. And then Cresswell says, while readers may be tempted to look for political messages, Said suggests that the real drama in this body of literature, is the writer's struggle to come up with a coherent form, Mm. a quote, narrative that might overcome the almost metaphysical impossibility of representing the present. Our characteristic mode, then, is not a narrative, but rather broken narratives, fragmentary compositions, and self-consciously staged testimonials, in which the narrative voice keeps stumbling over itself, its obligations, and its limitations. End quote. Creswell then goes on to talk about how the formal instability that Saeed ident- identifies as characteristic of Palestinian prose, from the novels Men in the Sun to In Search of Walid Massoud, books that are, in his words, variously episodic, discontinuous, and elaborately unresolved that your book in contrast, the Parisian adopts the cohesiveness of a 19th century novel that in a way it's defiantly formally old fashioned that unlike the setting of most Palestinian fiction, whose conditions are usually dislocation and displacement, you're evoking an era at the end of the Ottoman rule in a city novelist that is vibrant and self-sufficient and exists within a continuity that you're Palestinian book not being about exile is actually one of its remarkable aspects. On the other hand, your latest novel moves us to contemporary Palestine with our protagonist Sonia, a British actor of Palestinian heritage who goes to visit her sister Hanin, who lives in Haifa, and where Sonia finds herself roped into becoming part of a production of Hamlet that's going to be performed in the West Bank. So thinking of Cresswell's framing of the Parisian, using Said's framing of Palestinian literature, and the ways form can mirror the existential state of the country, I wondered if there are ways that you think the form is changed because you set us within the impossibility of a quote-unquote, "normal life in contemporary Palestine, whether living in Israel or Ramallah or Gaza.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question, the question of form. I think I disagree a bit with Saeed, the kind of categorical way in which he implies or states that forms have inherent political meanings. I think, in fact, you can use what's available in a form for different kinds of purposes, for different kinds of meanings, and kind of narrative coherence or storytelling that is um, maybe old-fashioned in a certain way, I think he he has a he has a kind of bone to pick with novels that have cohesive you know kind of like uh, narrative structures and he calls them totalitarian in a way they're the yeah. leather novels of empire um i think this isn't quite true i think you can you can sort of make that argument with certain texts and not with others you know we could you can't really claim that um fragmentation has is an inherently kind of like liberatory form or inherently mournful form or any of these things you know modernism produces Ezra Pound, as well as poets of the left. So I think that it's kind of up to the artist, how they use a form to express uh, political positioning and so forth. So I guess with the first novel, with my first novel with the Parisian, of course, I was harking back to a kind of 19th century bourgeois national project in a way by writing a novel that's old fashioned in this way with lots of characters, a bit like a Russian novel that's sort of like the novel of the of the imagined community of of benedict anderson's formulation right that the rise of the novel is for the rise of the newspaper and this is uh the beginnings of of uh of national consciousness around the world at different different times but the irony is that i obviously wrote this novel in in 2015 or whatever and i read it uh, and uh and it's the reader knows that the that the nation doesn't come into being um so that's kind of i suppose the meaning of that form um with the new one i i guess um it is fragmentary in a in a sense and it is a little more um based on scene but i i i think perhaps i i felt more unbuttoned by uh, unbuttoned from the kind of the strictures of um what i was trying to achieve in the first one so i was being playful i don't know that i necessarily was thinking about what it what it meant mm-hmm. um or i can't claim to i think a lot of it's unconscious
0: well contrary to the parisian which opens with an immense family tree and a map. In Enter Ghost, we are immediately confronted with questions of ease of movement and government surveillance as Sonia arrives at the airport and has to pass through a gauntlet of security searches by Israelis. What are your ties to this place? Why haven't you been back in 11 years? Why is your sister an Israeli citizen and not you? And it's quite invasive. Her belongings are searched A strip search ensues, and it takes a long time. But in her experience, it's relatively speaking a quote-unquote good experience, a quick and lucky one. But it is clear that the airport is the first topic family brings up, not only when she arrives, but when any Palestinian does. How did it go at the airport? How bad were the interrogations? And you yourself are in Palestine now took part in the Palestine Festival of Literature, launched your book, you were interviewed and you yourself interviewed Tana Coates and Mohammed El-Kurd. I'm wondering that about you coming back uh, or coming to Palestine during the recent shift of Israel's government to its most far-right government ever and and recent protests by Israelis against it and recent events like the pogrom in Hawara where Israeli settlers lit Palestinian homes and schools on fire that were occupied where the Israeli military was present but not doing anything about it. And afterwards where the finance minister said Hawara, a city of 6,000 people, should be wiped off the map. This government says out loud without any coded language what other governments might have thought but not said. And it makes me think of uh, the political scientist Dana Kurd, who is Palestinian, I believe, who tweeted, it's actually quite harmful to downplay the seriousness of conditions in Palestine right now. While absolutely justified to argue that the current government in Israel is not an aberration, it's also simply not accurate to say the current state of affairs is business as usual. It just made me wonder if anything feels substantively different for you this visit. Or if it's simply more of the same
1: i mean i think every time i come i try to come once a year it takes me a little while to adjust and i'm sometimes not certain if the change is in me or if it's in the place Um, obviously there are appreciable changes you can see the land disappearing for one thing you know it used to be the the settlements were sort of far away and then they just kind of get closer and closer to the road so you literally see the land of the west bank disappearing Mm. um uh, and then there's obviously there are moments when you feel uh, kind of upsurge of violence or you feel particular kind of tension where you are. You know, I've, I mean, I've only been here two weeks, and I sort of obviously can't can't kind of uh, generalise from from what it feels like right now. But I think that part of the reason why it's important to say this government is not an aberration is that it's actually expressive of a huge portion of Israeli society. Um, it's expressive of the nature of Zionism as an ideology, as an expansionist, ethno-nationalist ideology. So it's totally consistent with the state project so far. Uh, and, you know, what we're seeing is just uh, neck belt, continuous, essentially. But it is important also to recognize that the the kind of the flagrant way in which this government is Fearlessly mm-hmm. saying <laughs> those kinds of things like let's let's uh, wipe our water off the map. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that this is this is kind of major danger for a lot of people on a daily basis. Um, and uh, and not to not to speak lightly about that. Um, yeah. I mean, so I, d- I mean, I haven't felt, you know, my myself since I arrived anything acutely different. But I think I always feel pretty. Pretty shocked, I suppose, uh, at even if it's at the sameness, it's always kind of shocking in a sense.
0: Well, before we get into the story of Enter Ghost, I wanted to spend one more moment with the connection between the two books. You said that in your household, Palestinian history began with the Nakba, the catastrophe where seven hundred and fifty thousand Palestinians were dispossessed of their homes and land in forty eight that you knew very little of the Palestine of before other than the stories of your great-grandfather who became the inspiration for your protagonist in the Parisian. So that writing into late Ottoman Palestine and early British Mandate Palestine was a way for you to not only evoke Palestinian culture before fragmentation, but also to learn more about it yourself, including about Arab nationalist movements during British rule. And I wondered if there were any things you learned that deeply changed your own conception of Palestinian history and if any of those discoveries carry forward into the ways you've chosen to to depict life and enter ghost.
1: Probably the main discovery was how far back the struggle for self-determination went and that's maybe a little obvious now that I'm a grown-up I, can, I can, you know uh but I think as a child I sort of thought everything began at 48 that was the time of trouble and there was no trouble before that I didn't really have a sense I didn't really understand when my grandmother talked about the great revolt or the strike of the 30s I didn't really couldn't really grasp it and I think also I must say that growing up in Britain where there is still a remarkable and a, you know worrying reluctance and uh, you know, kind of willful myopia about british colonial history and british responsibility for such situations as as what has happened to palestine I think that also contributed to a kind of obscuring. I actually think the role of Britain in the story was I kind of didn't understand it. It took me a very long time to learn about empire, which seems kind of outrageous that it really was only when I started to read Chinua Achebe that I was like there's something, <laughs> you know, there's something to this history that's kind of that's being blocked from me from my understanding. So I think those were kind of the main things that I I began to see with great clarity. Uh and I suppose also the fact that the character of Midhat whose stories were sort of um, unpolitical in a way. You know, there were stories about a man who uh, was obsessed with France. He was kind of away with the fairies. He loved his clothes. He was in love with a French woman. He was kind of bumbling in a way, but very beloved by his family. Um, I couldn't really see this in its political social context either. The fact that what what did it mean to be in love with France at this time when France and Britain have carved out the Middle East? Like, what does that kind of contextually mean? And I didn't want to just dismiss his infatuation with French aesthetics or with the, with France as just, you know, the, the colonized longing for the colonizer, because it wasn't quite that either, you know, they were, they were part of the Ottoman empire. It was, they were sort of kind of British colonial, British and French colonial project in the Middle East was just beginning at that point. Um, so those were the sort of complications that began to emerge. The more I dug, the more I listened, the more I read.
0: Well, I'm sure you get the question a lot. Why Hamlet or why Shakespeare? Why is this Palestinian novel centered around the production of a British play in the occupied territories? As a pushback to this, I think of a line in your essay for LitHub: The Revolutionary Power of Palestinian Theater, where you say, It is wrong to think that artists can only choose between wholly imported Western forms and a local tradition that hasn't changed for thousands of years. In fact, this is a colonial attitude. And Shakespeare in general, and Hamlet in particular, have an interesting and, I think, multifaceted history in the Arab world. Um, And Palestinian theater also having a wide variety of influences, contrary to this possible notion of it not changing for thousands of years. Uh, Indigenous influences, theater across the Arab world, but also Brechtian, European avant-garde theater, Latin American, Brazilian theater of the oppressed, and others. And I know that Hamlet's first production in Arabic, in the Arab world, was in Gaza over 100 years ago, and that during the first intifada, Hamlet was on the list of books banned in the West Bank because of lines like, to be or not to be, and to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. And also Edward Said's own writings about Hamlet in his memoir, and that Hamlet is the most translated of Shakespeare's plays into Arabic. But I think most people in Europe and the U.S. often think of Hamlet in mainly psychological terms and on the scale of the family, even if it is also equally political and about the nation. So talk to us about how you decided that this play would be the core text for this novel versus Macbeth or Julius Caesar or a play by an Arab playwright.
1: Yeah, I mean I became interested in theater in Palestine when I first saw a film called Anna's Children by Giuliano Merchamis about his mother Anna who established a theater school for children in Janine refugee camp and subsequently Giuliano turned this into the Freedom Theater which kind of had as its sort of uh, you know he's, the way he, the way he spoke about it was about a cultural intifada so it was very much about um theatre not being therapeutic but actually being a kind of contributor to um, uh, a resistance which is also sort of ameliorative and healing in its own way but it's not about diffusing anger it's about kind of contributing to a feeling of resistance or kind of the energy that goes into that and I think to go to speak again to your previous question about crossing borders there is something very much about the colonial context and the um, and the structures of checkpoints of border crossings that are very, very theatrical, but I feel very weirdly theatrical and performative. The soldiers are very performative. And there's something about that and something about the history of theatre that I knew a little bit of and, you know, grew to know more about that uh, was provocative to me and sort of seemed um, uh, exciting to play around with on the page. And then Hamlet, I came to, I sort of, well, I thought, yeah, I thought maybe I could write my own play, and I thought I could use an Arabic play. And then I I thought Shakespeare is good because even though obviously he's an English, uh, an English playwright, he's also global in a certain way. And there are these other traditions. There's a the Soviet tradition, he's there are all these post-colonial reinterpretations of Shakespeare, and these are all part of the Shakespeare heritage. And then I found out about the about the history of Hamlet, in particular, uh, as you say, um, Hamlet being banned in the prisons during the, I think it was the first Intifada um and as a seen as an incitement to violence um and then i read a book by margaret litvin about the history of hamlet particularly in egypt um, and the way in which to be or not to be was translated as shall we be or not be because you you can't use the there's no infinitive in arabic and this was a slogan for arab nationalism so in fact the play of you know that in the west is seen as sort of like the psychological drama um is also about a kind of historical coming to consciousness of the Arab nation, so it has these this other history mm-hmm. um, to it. And I thought that that just it kind of was adding to the to the palette of things I could play around with, and it seemed very um, very rich, I guess, in resonances that I could draw on. I also think, in fact, to refer back to your first question about Said. That I also, and this is something that I obviously don't necessarily think about while I'm writing, but then when I look back at what I've written, I can see it very clearly, is that I'm obviously the heir of two traditions specifically, which is the Palestinian or Arabic language tradition at large, um, and and a kind of English language tradition, and and an heir to other traditions as well. I think that they're all part of our heritage collectively. But I think that those being ones that I know more intimately, they're ones I can play with in a kind of direct way. Um, and then also play with audience in a direct way. Different audiences are going to read different resonances. So I can I can make jokes about Hassan Kanafani in the book that a Palestinian audience will get, um, and and maybe ones about English novelists that uh, that an English or an American audience would get.
0: Well, near the beginning of the book, Hanin, the sister with Israeli citizenship, she takes Sonia to a play at an Arab theater, and Sonia knows nothing about Arab theater or the history of Arab theater, and the play is called The Jester. I looked it up. It is a real play by a Syrian playwright written in 1969, an historical satire that, among other things, is critiquing Shakespeare's Othello, but it's also using the presence of Shakespeare within the play to critique Britain and America, as well as parodying a certain sort of Arab heroism. And the play apparently is also partially a reaction to the 67 uh, Six-Day War. But it also has a meta aspect, like your book, in that the play itself is about the actors arriving to perform the play Othello. And it reminded me of a funny exchange between the actors in the Hamlet of your book, where Amin brings up that there is a version of Hamlet in Arabic that has a happy ending without a suicide, which sort of stuns our protagonist, Sonia. And then Amin wonders if the play can still have catharsis with a happy ending. And Sonia says she hasn't read her Aristotle in in too long. And then Amin says Arabs translated Aristotle but skipped the part about catharsis. They said instead the purpose of tragedy was happiness. And then Ibrahim interjects, that's why we don't have a tradition of theater here. And Amin says, we have a tradition. It's comedy, satire, even though our history is all tragedy, says Ibrahim. But back to the jester, Sonia doesn't seem impressed by the play. It's through her eyes, so I'm not sure how much of this is because of her unfamiliarity with the tropes of this comedic style of Arabic theater or more that this isn't a very good production of this play. But I wondered if you could speak to what work the jester is doing here in the book and what, if anything, it not being great is signaling either about Sonia or the state of theater and Haifa or anything else. If it's signifying anything,
1: that's such a great question. I mean, I think partly the partly I love that play, and it's it's very it's hilarious, um, and it does those things that you mentioned. It's plays within plays, uh, and obviously Hamlet has a play within a play, and then I've got a play within a book, and all this kind of like you know uh, things to to play with, I guess. But it's also including that uh, that accusation that Shakespeare is a cover for British imperialism, and therefore for American imperialism. That it's a kind of I don't want to generalize, but there's a kind of common trope also for Arabs to be conspiracy theorists, with good reason, because there have been a lot of conspiracies against the Arabs. Um, so I think that I wanted to also get that in there there, and then I could voice that um, and, and kind of, and then it could be one of the things I'm juggling with as well. The kind of multi tradition, but also the sort of suspiciousness about importing a, um, a Shakespeare, a kind of as, as a Western, as a Western playwright, Western text, and what that means about. Mariam, the director's ambitions, why does she want to put on Hamlet? Why does she want to put on this kind of grand, highfalutin play about interiority and the kind of complex language from this, this old tradition? Um, And it has to do with her ambitions as a, as a theatre director that she wants to do something really grand at scale. So, I mean, I think Sonia... Sonia's response, I think probably it's um, partly justified. I think it's probably not a very, like a kind of superior production, but I think it's also has to do with what she is valuing, uh, what what she kind of sees as valuable in a theater production. Um, And this is another thing that the characters also debate, you know, what is the purpose of theater? Is it to be some kind of a, a sort of perfectly sealed aesthetic object, or is it something that might be rough at the edges, but actually intervenes in a cultural context? And these are, Different ways of thinking about a play that will vary on depending on the context. So Sonia, you know, she opens the play kind of aspiring to West End theatre, to sort of high London theatre, and she feels she didn't really make it. She feels she's failed, and by the end of the book, she's seeing her role as an actor as actually potentially something quite different, and that there might be a different set of values to uh, by which to evaluate to think about her her role and what makes good theatre.
0: Well, let's let's hear a little section from them. Rehearsing the play Hamlet.
1: So this takes place in Bethlehem. And one thing that it's important to point out is that Wael, who's playing Hamlet, is a famous pop star who has no acting experience, but he's been cast because Mariam, the director, wants to attract as big a crowd as possible uh, to see the play. Watching the pair of them, I indulged a mental tick I developed of translating words and phrases back into English, comparing meanings and sounds. The original was so well worn inside me, it was practically a patchwork of quotations, tinny with centuries of repetition, impossible to prevent them shadowing the attic of my memory. Rich gifts wax poor when gibbers prove unkind. We are arrant knaves, believe none of us. Wael was telling Janan for the third time that she ought to go to a nunnery, when a voice shouted, Sorry I'm late. Everyone turned at once. The lanky figure of Merjid was running towards us, wearing an Adidas tracksuit and yellow-framed spectacles, lifting dust with his sneakers. I got an interrogation order. He was out of breath, wiping his lenses on his T-shirt. My wife made me go back for it. She freaked out, police in the house. Hi, everyone, he added as he put his glasses back on, and did a double-take. Who were all these people? Open rehearsal. Mariam hesitated before switching to English and lowering her voice. What's it for, did they say? Mejid handed her a folded page. The circle of people around us watched, the camp boys jostling each other, conferring, Jesh, jesh. I had an odd thought that Maryam could have spoken in Hebrew since this was a tourist town and everyone understood English, but of course the sound of Hebrew would not be well received this side of the wall. Maryam read the interrogation order, which was itself I now saw entirely in Hebrew and met my eye and then met Ibrahim's. "'Do you think they know your brother's still involved?' said Ibrahim. Mariam blew her cheeks out. "'How?' said Wael. "'Talk about it later,' said Mariam. "'Finish the scene first, guys.' Jean and Wael returned to their positions to complete the dialogue. Both looked rattled, particularly Janan, which was understandable. She'd just joined us. She was feeling out our dynamic. And now not only was a new dynamic hatching, but a threat had materialised. Of interrogation, of danger, of disillusion even.' As far as I was concerned, if the Israelis really made an effort to stop us, it would not be worth the fight. We were mere human beings. There was only so much we could do. The only person who didn't look unnerved was Maryam, who stared at her actors as though with the force of her gaze she could make them more sturdy. I had a feeling I sometimes get when I drink too much coffee, which was that while standing still watching Jeanne and Wael, another more agitated Sonia was wriggling inside my skin trying to get out. I was thirsty as well and I needed the loo. And in this state of physical discomfort, something strange happened. My viewpoint switched and as though I were in a dream and my perspective had been breached, I moved like a surveillance drone and saw our project from above, situated fragilely in time and space, this summer, this side of the wall. Accompanying this vision was a fear, almost a premonition that it was all foretold. Anyway, everything had been decided in advance. We were only acting parts that had been given to us and now some inexorable machinery was being set in motion that would sooner or later throw our efforts out into the audience, dismantle our illusions, and leave us cowering before the faceless gods of fate and state. I walked a few paces over to the angled shade cast by the set and its scaffolding. Moving there heartened me. I looked up at our tall wooden stage, which had been drawn on paper and brought to life. It was strong. It would withstand the rain. It was a monument, a work, like the giant key at the refugee camp, which had probably been praised by some critic at some tent at the Biennale. It was terrible to take heart in the thought that a monument was less likely to be bulldozed than an ordinary person's home, but no sooner had I thought this than I doubted it was true. I doubted the power of what Mariam called PR, whether being photographed many times, appearing in a newspaper, could ever really protect a building or a human life when it came down to it. Valiantly, Wa'el and Jinan were carrying on, and then Jinan was completing her final speech saying of Wa'el, I see now that refined and noble intellect ringing as sweet bells jangle discordantly, detestably. And after the silence that signified the end of scene came the sudden fracturing of applause and our crowd became restless, homing in on Wael, calling his name. Mariam announced a 10 minute break and then we'll run the fencing scene and then we're going home. And I watched her sit beside Janan making wheel-like hand gestures, taking the script from her and licking her fingers to flick it back a few pages. I dreamt about you last night, said a voice. It was Amin, beside me, rolling a smoke. Really? What was I doing? I couldn't keep the edge out of my tone. His friendliness unnerved me. Try to remember. He ran the sticky margin of his paper over his tongue. It wasn't about you, the dream. Don't be scared. I just made an appearance. Exactly. Minor character. Right. On the stage steps, Wael held his jacket rakishly over one shoulder while strangers crowded around him. He leaned in for each selfie. His white smile flashed and shut, flashed and shut. He looked much more comfortable being famous than being Hamlet.
0: We've been listening to Isabel Hamad read from her latest book, Enter Ghost. I wanted to ask you about having protagonists in both books who themselves, I don't think, have a very sophisticated political analysis or political sensibility, at least not as we begin. I think also of the character in the contemporary half of Adania Shibley's novel, Minor Detail, who also doesn't have a framework of analysis, actually much, much less of one than your characters. In her case, she even blames herself for things that are clearly the result of the impossible situation she lives within. In Enter Ghost, there's a lot of political discussion among characters and political difference between characters that makes things quite dynamic, but I, I both wondered if, as a writer, there were, was something compelling about moving through this story and this space, whose every square inch is politically fraught, with a main character who has lived most of her life not directly engaging with the situation. If that affords advantages or ways of telling the story that appeal to you, versus, say, if the director of the play, Mariam, who's a very interesting and dynamic character, had been the main character, someone who not only is very engaged and oriented to everything, but also someone Sonia envies for what she sees as an uncomplicated sense of her own destiny, her straightforwardness, her clear headedness of her place and her role, politically and otherwise, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, in fact, at one point I did consider making Mariam the main character because she has some of the the weight and the complication and the kind of charisma of a of a protagonist, maybe even more than Sonia, who is not necessarily that charismatic. She's quite funny, but she's, you know, she's also sort of brittle and grumpy. Yeah. Um, but I think that I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I am, I'm interested in in ambivalence and I'm interested in the processes by which people become politicized or politically aware. And obviously, Sonia, that happens more to Sonia than it does to Midhat, who's kind of, uh, he's hes political, because of his context, or kind of politicized to the extent that everybody living in Nablus has a political sense, it's the air they breathe. But he's not a political actor and he's not a hero. And so I suppose I'm interested in that process, um, how the mind changes, how individuals recognize themselves as part of a collective. And in addition, there isn't also the, the way in which having a character who is contemplating or dealing with the edges of a political sense um, or the sense in which they're part of something larger enables me to engage with the political material in a less direct way Um, or it's less kind of uh, it somehow it eases it eases a reader in who might not be so familiar with the context as well I mean I never I don't want to I never want it to be like I'm hand holding to a western reader but but I also want it to be accessible to people who aren't familiar with Palestine. And it, there is a lot to explain <laughs> um, to, to help people to understand Palestine. And so I'm, yeah, I'm interested in those kind of, those those hinges of consciousness.
0: Well, I was gonna play a question from someone else later that I'm gonna play now, I think, because I, I wonder if it's related to your answer a little bit. So we have a question for you from Yara Hawari, the author of The Stone House, a new Arab book of the year. and. 2021, who's the host of the podcast, Rethinking Palestine, and a senior analyst at Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. And I had no idea until I reached out to Yara, and she told me that you're actually staying together, at least for part of the time, while you're in (laughs) Palestine. So
1: you can see her name up there. Okay.
0: (laughs) So here's a question from your housemate, Yara Hawari.
1: Bella, the main character in *Enter Ghost* is a Palestinian citizen of Israel. What we Palestinians call a forty-eighter. Why did you decide to focus on that particular Palestinian experience? Well, thank you, Yara. Um, so actually, Sonia doesn't have doesn't have a passport, but her sister does, and that's something kind of complicates their um, their relationship. In fact, and distinguishes their position in Palestine, in historic Palestine. Um, but I was interested in 48ers, Palestinians within, you know, 48 refers to the territory taken in 1948, as opposed to 67. And uh, I was interested in that experience because it wasn't an experience that I was so familiar with. My grandfather was from Haifa, but I didn't know him and uh, and he was a refugee. Um, so my my family's in, in the West Bank or outside Palestine. And uh, I'm interested in, I suppose, the particular complicatedness of that. Positionality to have an is have Israeli citizenship, but and to but to still be a you know second class citizen, but also have mobility and to have you know the right kind of citizen rights that that West Bank Palestinians or Palestinians in Gaza or refugees don't don't have, um or or indeed um Jerusalemites. And I suppose part of the project as well of this novel was to imagine a context in which Palestinians of all these different legal backgrounds are um. Are working together on on a play, um, and logistically by giving my, you know, putting my protagonist in '48, I, I allow I give a kind of maximum um, freedom of movement to my character, to the narrative, to actually cover as much of historic Palestine as I can, with the exception of Gaza, which I couldn't realistically include, yeah. um, although that absence is gestured to. But yeah, that was a kind of I think that I think the Palestinians in '48. There's a kind of old trope about Palestinians in '48, which is that they're not very political, and that they are the, you know, they play good Arab, that they are quiet. And I think this also is not really true. And in fact, they have a very strong sense of being Palestinian, or at least um, those who I, I am, um, I'm are friends. I mean, I'm friends with them, and I think that partly has to do with the security that that uh, position confers on them. They're not so afraid to speak out. There's less fear of repercussion. Mm. Um, and I think that those. Those elements but nevertheless they're hebrew speakers they're growing up in this context it's very different to growing up in the west bank
0: one thing that having this sort of less political protagonist does and in both your book and shibley's is is that it allows the situation i think of the land itself to speak for itself Mm -hmm. in in minor detail our protagonist is disoriented bewildered and even though she blames herself and and frames it psychologically, it's clear to the reader that the disorientation is from the erasure and replacement of place names and the labyrinthine system of checkpoints, each one sort of an existential gauntlet with regulations around who can be in Area A or Area B and so on. And I really love what you've done with this group of actors who are rehearsing to perform Hamlet. They're from Ramallah, from Jerusalem, from a refugee camp, from Haifa, from the diaspora, and as you say, everywhere but Gaza, because that would have been unrealistic, that a Gazan would be able to move at all to gather in the different places that they rehearse or perform. Each has a different situation at a given checkpoint, even though the objective distances that they have to travel are small, the time to get to a given place can be immense, and sometimes rehearsals are delayed because of this but it's also the frequent topic of conversation like the airport and it feels like the politics speak in these situations without a character having to speak them uh, but having these very different palestinians some from the diaspora some from the west bank some from the 48 it made me think of something you read and spoke about for the red by podcast and there you chose to read from Jean Genet's Prisoner of Love, which is a chronicle of his time with the Palestinian Fedayeen in the refugee camps in Jordan in the 1970s. And you quote Said, who called the book, A seismographic reading, drawing and exposing the fault lines that a largely normal surface had hidden. And you say that throughout the book, Shanae meditates on the Black Panthers, who he had visited in March of 1970, just a few months prior to joining the Palestinians. And in each context, he describes feeling like a dreamer inside a dream. In each context, he felt at home. And he considers the similarities of the movements. Both people are deprived of a territory from which to launch their revolutions. And therefore, they rely on spectacle to assert themselves. But spectacle is transitory and sometimes shades into illusion, you say. Spectacle, says Janet, is the product of despair. I was thinking of the reliance on spectacle to assert oneself and the idea of a dreamer inside of a dream when I think of this choice you've made in the book to include so many different Palestinian experiences and situations among your Hamlet troop and to have them come together against the impossibilities of doing so, to do this thing together. It felt like your gesture, this enactment, almost felt like a dream or an utopian dream or an aspirational map. And I wondered if this gesture toward Hamlet is also a gesture toward cohesiveness, perhaps similar to what Cresswell was saying about the cohesiveness of pre-Nakba, Palestine and the Parisian, but not by going before fracture and fragmentation to write the story, but almost as if this is the response to it, this um, creating this aspirational performative space. That Janae would have called the, the spectacle as the product of despair.
1: I think that it is certainly, there's some aspect of it that is a kind of, that is fantasy in a way. Um, but it is also, in a way, also true. For example, in May 2021, when we had the Sheikh Jarrah happenings, when um, houses were being taken over by, by armed settlers in, in East Jerusalem, what happened was an what they called the Inter- unity intifada, the intifada of unity, which was actually where Palestinians from all geographies were gesturing at each other and supporting each other um, within 48, within Jerusalem, within diaspora, within Gaza. And that there was something very moving about those those moments of unity, of working together and collectively striking or whatever it is. They seem to happen largely at moments of crises, crisis. But they do happen and there is something i think to be said for the younger generation and the links that are made i don't know this is also partly the role of the internet but those links are there uh, and i think that they can be encouraged and are give me a feeling you know a good feeling um with in the midst of everything right uh but there's also i guess there's something about putting on a play that the dynamics of the kind of group project that also it's also a cipher for other kinds of collaboration, or other kinds of, um, in the positive sense, not in the uh, negative sense, of working together, of of solidarity. It, it kind of, it also, it's also not just a play. It's also an action. It's also an operation that they're doing. You know, it's also flirting with danger. It's also confrontational. And so those internal dynamics within within the play structure also stand for something else, or they gesture at something else as well. But it, the Genet book, The Prisoner of Love, was one of the books that uh, I was reading as I started writing the novel. And it provided me with quite a lot of material, I suppose, or important images that stayed with me. And among them was that passage that I uh, that I read, which is a moment when they're playing cards, when the Fideiin are playing cards, even though gambling has been banned. And after this long description of, of them playing cards and cheating and whatever, or winning, um, that Jeunet is witnessing... He then kind of uh, switches to a description of the a, of a Japanese obon feast of the dead, uh, at which the dead are not absent, and it's celebrating that which is absent. And then, in a parenthesis, he tells us that in fact, the card game was fake; they, their hands were empty. It was all mimed. When I read that, the hair stood up on the back of my head. Obviously, he's using it as a um, as an image of of Palestine, of that which is absent, um, the ceremony in in uh, in in celebration of that which is absent and that being the Fideen who are in Jordan who are you know who can't be in Palestine it provoked something in me about about illusion about kind of illusion and um and collective illusion that I could play with on the page um it's one of those things one of those moments that I can't really articulate in words it's sort of was almost just a feeling that it gave me that that kind of rushed me into into writing the book
0: Well, one of the boundaries that you handle so well is not just the geographic one, but linguistic. And I remember Adania saying in our conversation that in many settings, for example, waiting at the post office in Jerusalem, you can't tell visually if someone is Jewish or Arab, that phenotypically it often isn't clear, that things become political only when you speak, when you choose the language you're speaking which places you in a certain way within the public sphere. And language is really fraught in your book. There is a shape-shifting quality that Sonia uses and that Midhat and the Parisian used in your last novel, where Sonia emphasizes her Englishness and the English language to get through the airport or a checkpoint, or if she's in a taxi and she isn't sure if the taxi driver is Palestinian or Israeli. And notably... She doesn't know Hebrew, unlike her sister Hanin. She's even shocked to discover that her sister reads in Hebrew for pleasure. And I found a statistic that seemed relevant, that 90% of Arabs in Israel speak Hebrew, while only 3% of Israeli-born Jews speak Arabic, and some portion of those are learning Arabic not to build bridges, but because of their aspirations to join uh, Israeli intelligence organizations. Sonia understandably moves through Haifa wary of speaking Arabic, but also unable to speak Hebrew. And each encounter in what should be the most banal of circumstances, going to the beach or to an outdoor cafe, feels like it has to be negotiated for her. And, and part of this is linguistic, a significant part of it, and how that announces her status. In the Parisian, you use untranslated phrases in Arabic that Cresswell suggests break the realist illusion, the illusion that we are somehow both magically in a foreign place but also understand everything that is being said, and that it also forces the reader to wonder whether we have full access to the thoughts and feelings of these Palestinian characters. But here it feels like it is something different, almost like all of these encounters are sort of similar to checkpoints, linguistic checkpoints, where power dynamics are being negotiated in real time. I guess I wanted to hear you talk more about language and identity in Enter Ghost and in light of this.
1: I mean, sort of what you're talking about is code switching, isn't it? It's yeah. about um, having having the repertoire available for certain kinds of code switching that are smooth, which Sonia doesn't have, but which other uh, 48ers would have if they'd grown up with Hebrew. So she's sort of, her tools are more blunt. Um, so she has to play at being English when she feels uncomfortable about being Arab. Uh, and then when they go to the beach when they're kids, they're worried about speaking Arabic because we'll identify them as Arabs and so forth. It, there's also the question of the play being translated into Arabic. I was using the Arabic in in the Parisian for a specific purpose in a way, which was Midhat has had this experience in French, and then he goes back to an Arabic language context. And Obviously, I was writing in English, so I felt like I wanted to give some texture of those languages to gesture at the division in his own mind. The whole book is kind of map of his mind. That division takes a sort of concrete form at the end when he he confronts the, the marker in his head in a way. I had the different kinds of intentions with this book, and apart from those moments which I guess you know because so much of writing novels is unconscious, I don't know that i was I was necessarily orchestrating them. I think I was just trying to paint how it is in a way, but obviously that is a fabric of the reality here the west bank is is band to stands basically enclaves, and so you're you're often moving if you have the freedom of movement, you're moving between these contexts where there are different kinds of uh, references there are different kinds of signaling people are often judging where someone is from by the, what they're wearing what is your clo- what do your clothes signal in addition to language actually what do your clothes signal where did you get those clothes what <laughs> you know what are you wearing around your neck um these things also signal identity uh and uh, and politics um and I and I find that very interesting mm-hmm. um that kind of way in which people read each other but there was also the question of yeah the the hamlet itself I've used the translation by um Uh, Palestinian writer called Jabra Ibrahim Jabra who's from Bethlehem and he translated lots of Shakespeare very beautifully Um, and I used that text and kind of translated it back into English to sort of defamiliarize the reader in a way from the from the Hamlet Um, although obviously it kind of like you know bastardizes Shakespeare's lovely words but um, it also places Sonia in a in an awkward position because she doesn't have such sophisticated uh, grasp with classical Arabic because she is rusty. She doesn't really read much in Arabic for pleasure. She's, you know, she's obviously fluent in spoken Arabic is a different unless they've really practiced it or unless they're trained. Um, so that dynamic also is something that I wanted to play out uh, in Sonia's discomfort, perhaps, and also being part of this production.
0: Well, in your essay about Palestinian theater, you talk about how part of that particularly vibrant, revolutionary era of theater in the 70s in the shadow of the defeat in the Six-Day War is that the theater companies, or some of them, started moving from performing plays in classical Arabic to Palestinian dialect, that they were using the language that most closely comes from and reflects the conditions of, of both those in the play and those watching the play. Is that also part of why you would want to start with uh, an Arabic translation of Hamlet and then carry that back into English with that changed syntax? Not that it's, I mean, obviously it's creating a third thing, right? It's, it's creating a, a different English from a translation into Arabic, which I understand the defamiliarization, but I'm also wondering about this other element potentially.
1: The question of spoken Arabic. Yeah, I mean, I, I put a game in the book where Maryam makes them say all their lines in dialect, which is actually an idea I got from... Um, I watched lots of different Hamlets to get a sense of... Uh, to, to kind of just experience the play again and again and kind of see how different directors had done it, how different actors had performed Hamlet. And my my favourite uh, English one uh, was an actor... I can't remember his name now. He's, he's in... Um, He's in Fleabag. Did you ever watch Fleabag? Mm-hmm. He's a he's a British director. He plays the priest. Oh
0: yeah, I like remember that actor. Name? I don't remember. He's his a name. very
1: good. He's a very good actor, but he's a TV actor. And so he and but he, I really liked his Hamlet in part because he brought this spokenness to it. Mm. Um, he actually, uh, rather than I think some of the temptation in doing Hamlet in English, is. Um, is to, to put on a special Shakespeare voice and to be kind of like lardy dar about it, but in fact he found ways to make the language really earthy and to kind of really communicate what was the content of the sentences, even if you couldn't understand the complicated prose or the archaic uh, uh, language. And I thought about that in, in 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 inserting this game into the into the rehearsal process where they have to use spoken Arabic to communicate the lines to kind of bring the bring the language. Down into the context and down to kind of real feeling rather than something rarefied and literary. Um I don't know if this is quite answering your question, but I think these are things I thought about in the putting on of the play, because in a way I got to put on the play. You know, I was mm-hmm. so it was something about playing around with um the uh the putting on of a production. I could stage it, I chose the I chose the costumes, <laughs> but without having to actually go through with it.
0: <laughs> well, I think it speaks to my reading experience that something that I would imagine without encountering it would be the most static part of the book, the, the reading of the play Hamlet, and you us being with the actors reading their lines, that was the best part of the book. I mean, the most dynamic and electric part of the book was when they're practicing Hamlet, strangely enough, and the lines mm-hmm. from Hamlet, but then the debates in between the lines and the, the interpersonal dramas that are happening as they're um, trying to assemble and then assembling and, and practicing
1: Cool. That's great to
0: hear. I wanted to take this question of language into the realm of speech and censorship. As part of my preparation for today, I watched and listened to interviews with various Palestinian theater directors, either working in Palestine or the US or in the UK. And on the Kunafa and Shea theater podcast, they interviewed the theater directors, Hana Edi, a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship, who now lives in the U.S., and Ahmad Mansour from Gaza, who now lives in the U.K. And Mansour said that simply expressing his situation and right to exist is in itself political. It's political theater. And Edie suggested that regardless of what a play is about, if the government shuts it down, it is political theater both mention plays getting canceled, the difficulty of getting plays with these topics staged. And Mansour says that in the UK, it seems like they would prefer a white playwright telling the story of going to Palestine over a Palestinian telling the story of being from Palestine. And Edie mentions how in his first theater company in Palestine, he was fired as director and replaced by a Druze from a nearby village because the Druze were, generally speaking, more loyal to Israel. He moved to Haifa, worked at the theater of the Arab-Israeli Cultural Center, which is supported by a large amount of international funding. But by the third year there, he realized it was really a showpiece meant to help Israel say, see, we treat the Arabs equally and to secure funding this way that the plays had to be submitted to the government for approval and go through a censor. And if you added a line back in that they had crossed out, you would get a warning. If you did it again, you'd get another warning. Then your salary would be reduced, and then ultimately you would be fired. So he resigned and moved to the United States before they could fire him. But it seems like the pressure to censor isn't just coming from the Israeli government. I watched an interview with Marina Barham from the Media News podcast, and she's the co-founder and director of Al-Hara, a theater close to Bethlehem. And she talked about how international donors, which fund many of these theaters, donors who ostensibly are motivated by notions of free speech, equal rights, and democracy, nevertheless, when... They see her use the word martyr in a play, for instance, they say, You can't do that. And it's endlessly frustrating. And similarly, Gabriel Varghesi, the author of Palestinian Theater in the West Bank, which looks at the histories of five major theater companies in the West Bank, he goes into the power dynamics of privilege within collaborations between Western companies and Palestinian ones and and the ways that this affects how things get performed and what gets performed. And there are so many obstacles to Hamlet getting performed in Enterghost, beyond checkpoints and registration identity papers. Uh, Electricity, blackouts, surveillance... But also, it's mentioned near the beginning a theater that gets its funding yanked entirely because of things similar to what I've mentioned, and I wondered if you could speak to censorship and Enter Ghost, and maybe the blurry line between it and self-censorship for an artist.
1: I mean, the question of money is the one that's at play here: censorship through funding or the holding funding. This is a particularly a problem. Uh, well, not particularly a problem, but it is certainly a problem for. And has been historically a problem for theatres in 48 um, who are, uh, you know, relying on state funding. Right? There was a case which I actually refer to in the book where um, the biggest theatre in Haifa was shut down because they performed um, a play that included letters by um, a Palestinian political prisoner, Wally Daqa, And this basically, the the state responded by saying this was treasonous, and they withdrew funding from the theatre, and the theatre shut down. Um, and this is not a kind of single occurrence, so lots of examples of this, as well as more direct examples of soldiers, you know, walking onto the set uh, or the stage, uh, particularly, you know, kind of in the 80s and 90s, uh, when, when you know, the text has violated the censors' uh, diktat. So there is something particular about... Censoring theatre as an art form that is live, I think that is that has the possibility to be spontaneous. That has to do with the polis, has to do with groups of people. I think that that's threatening. There's also the kind of theatre of protest. These things can kind of and have bled into one another in a way. And then there is the particular thing in which funding is required to put on a play, and that that can compromise. Political or artistic integrity, in a, in a sense, either because you're trying to stay on the good side of a state, or you are uh, subject to the the conditions of international funding or NGO funding, which tends to have a depoliticized mandate that is working and is working on solely on social issues. So they'll be like you know, this is the Swedish fund for whatever, and we want you to do a play about women you know, or something, you know, but it's not about, it's never going to be about uh, the, you know, the larger context or the larger political struggle that this is sort of left off. And this is kind of classic of the way, the way the NGO culture actually props up the occupation in a way, and which it through kind of complicated means, which I won't go into. But um, the art world itself, having been not just, not just theatre world as well, you know, you could also say this about visual art to, to a certain degree, having been very much a part of a culture of resistance um, and a and a sense of collective identity then is sort of neutered by or or um or shackled by uh, the the question of funding and the NGOization of uh, of that sphere and that I really made part of the book because obviously they um, they're trying this actively trying to seek funding that is not um from a European or an American donor and therefore not tied to particular conditions. But Mariam, the director's brother, Salim Mansour, has been involved and he is a member of the Knesset. So this has already drawn the attention of the government to the project and he's been suspended um, for mysterious reasons. So that that question allowed me also to kind of draw on that, to kind of highlight um, both the interconnectedness of Palestinian society, but also how threatening that interconnectedness is to the Israelis in a sense. Mm.
0: Well, obviously, you know a lot about the history and circumstance of Palestinian theater. And in the spirit of learning about how you learned all of this, we have a question for you from Palestinian-American poet and performance artist George Abraham, whose debut poetry collection, Birthright, won the Arab-American Book Award.
2: Hi, Isabella. Uh, My name is George Abraham. I'm a Palestinian-American poet, and I am a huge, huge fan of your work. I'm so excited to be here asking you a question virtually. I guess in, like, reading Enter Ghost, i a huge fan of the Parisian. I'm really interested in the ways that both of the projects sort of use extremely detailed like realist etc prose to build two very different worlds right in the parisian we sort of have this like pre-nakba insistent you know pre-nakba world of palestine that these characters sort of enliven through their presence through their transit beyond palestine even just a small detail of like oh, these people can move fluidly in space is a haunting thing to read as a contemporary Palestinian, right? And these sort of seemingly, like, tiny details come to really haunt the characters throughout their trajectories in imperial space and time. Thinking about, like, for instance, the pocket watch, right, which Mithat's father gives to him, Right. As he goes off to France, it has its whole trajectory and he gives it to Laurent. And then um, even later on towards the end of the book, it kind of comes back in a very key moment. I don't want (laughs) to sort of spoil it for people reading. um, But even just little tiny details like little objects and uh, object memories really come back to play a significant haunting force as like Palestine coming to France And then France now coming back to Palestine through Midhat's trajectory. And there's an interesting kind of like return narrative almost there. Very different, you know, pre-Nakba. But um, nevertheless, like Midhat returns to Palestine haunted in that book. Whereas here, I think in Enter Ghost, there's of course a different kind of return in our contemporary, you know, era. And all the sort of post-Zionist catastrophe era Palestine like all the limits that that imposes on us who are not able to return um, for both different reasons as via historical violence and circumstance but also very similar systems of like imperialist borders and and I really appreciate the way both books sort of really inhabit across subjective distances like different kinds of imperialist mentalities and the internalization they're in and um anyways i'm just like kind of fangirling right now over um how brilliant you are and how brilliant uh, both of these books are and i guess as that background to the question i would really love to hear you talk more about process wise how Uh, Enter ghosts sort of differed and maybe perhaps surprised you or gave you certain unexpected difficulties process-wise as you were writing and researching the world of enter ghosts versus something like the parisian which is also just an exquisitely well researched down to the last historical interfamilial detail right um book and um, both of these books like build an entire world of palestinians and palestinian and potentialities thereof and I would be very, very curious to hear if there are any sort of like what what carried over from the Parisian versus what um, forced you to think differently um, process wise, research wise, however you want to take it. Thank you so much for having me, David, and uh, thank you so much for your generous uh, engagement and truly generous books, uh, Isabella. I'm a huge fan. Thank you all. What
1: a lovely question. That's so nice. Um well, I mean, I think I would start with what he, what he said about detail. Um, there was a kind of non-political uh, way in which I was. Well, I, well, actually, everything's political. I don't think it's non-political, but but it was more about my own imaginative process with the first novel, which was I just really wanted to know what it was like and to imagine it. So the whole project, in a way, was um, down to the you know intimate details. Not only to get things right, but I just really wanted to see it and feel it, and so the kind of the sensory, material aspects of life in Palestine uh, before the Nakba was was how I wanted to spend those five years, and obviously that does that was a that motivated by something explicitly political which was that I wanted to write a book about Palestinian society before 1948 to show that uh, the Zionist slogan, um, a people without a land for a land without a people was a lie. And that, that you know, um, that when Goldemir said there is no such thing as Palestinians, that I was like, I'm going to, you know, at the age of 20, grand age of 21, I said, I'm going to write a novel about Palestinians before 1948. Um, And then I kind of put that aside. I didn't want it to be a book that that kind of sloganeers or anything. I just wanted it to be kind of rich, engaging novel that that deals with these with these ideas, um, but not in a not in a didactic way. Um, And my and my kind of way of manifesting that was through this this thing about detail, which I do also think in retrospect, I I thought I thought about it afterwards in terms of Roland Barthes, the reality effect, the way in which the um, incidental detail in in real classical realism, uh, that which is not central to the plot, that which is incidental is what helps the reader to suspend their disbelief and to believe the veracity or the kind of, it's it's a contributor to verisimilitude in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this, in a Palestinian context, has a specific political uh, resonance, the reality effect to kind of um, recuperate the reality of life before the Nakba, um, not only as a, to kind of to give the lie to this Punisher slogan, but also as you sort of mentioned earlier, the way in which Palestinians themselves will will allow, will not allow, but the, the history of Palestine is is in many ways um, structured around the Nakba. Um, whenever I would talk about writing this book, my grandmother would tell people that I was writing about the Nakba, and I would you know say to her, "I'm like, no, I'm writing about before the Nakba." She just couldn't get it. She would give me books about the Nakba. She would send me to Nakba uh, specialists, and then I say, "Oh, you know, I kind of say again, I'm writing about the before the Nakba." She said, "We call it all Nakba." which isn't true, but it was, it was to me a sign that it was so dominant in her mind that she couldn't even, she couldn't even kind of incorporate or, or uh, absorb this sense of a before of a before time. With the, with Enter Ghost, of course, the, the experience, it was different because I didn't really need to do the same kind of research. I, I mean, I did a bit as all novelists do research. I spoke to theatre practitioners and I um, went to a couple of rehearsals and I, the most valuable interviews that I did were with, um, those who had been involved in theater back in the seventies and eighties. Um, that was really interesting to to hear their experiences, but it was, it was kind of, um, I didn't, yeah, kind of, it was mostly stuff I already knew actually. I didn't need to, um, I didn't need to dig. It didn't need to be a kind of scholarly endeavor to, to, to the extent that the first novel was. Um, and that switch was refreshing as well because obviously all the kind of like historical legwork for the first novel is very, uh, very tiring quite burdensome as well as being very enriching um and uh and joyful in in certain ways um and very sociable as well you know the first book was very populated by other people's voices um i made a book that you know you know kind of a solitary activity very sociable and this one was less so and there was also i think maybe i could say something else about the the writing of it that i switched to the first person in this book I began, I wrote almost two thirds, I think in third person uh, and it wasn't quite working because I couldn't quite sympathize with the protagonist enough or I couldn't quite kind of, um, I hadn't quite cracked her in a sense. And then I experimented with it in first person and something kind of became clear. I don't know if it was just the text itself became strange to me and therefore I could see it more clearly, but I, um, I knew what to trim, I knew what to expand. And it gave me um, certain kind of fluidity to learn how to how to work with the first person has certain limitations and certain uh, virtues and um, gives you a certain kind of ease with the prose and a vocal quality. So whereas maybe in the first book, I was very focused on the sentence as a unit. in the second book, I was working with larger units, I think if that makes sense.
0: Well, I was really captivated by Marina Barham telling her own story about the children's theater that she ran called, in English, Stubborn Theater, uh, before the second intifada. How she strongly believed that theater can help both children and adults not only deal with the traumas of occupation, but also to resist it. And how she felt early on that kids throwing rocks at checkpoints should be spending their time being kids, laughing and being joyful and playing, but that it was hard to create those spaces, and she wanted to create those spaces. But then during the second intifada, the theater was bombed. Um, She said it wasn't targeted for being a theater, but that the children were inside and, of course, entirely traumatized. And it was then she realized that that the theater had to change. They started keeping their stage sets somewhere else, holding their rehearsals elsewhere, which reminds me a little of how the rehearsals and Enter Ghosts are often in the director's backyard. And she decided they needed to bring the theater to the children, especially because there was now an imposed curfew during the second intifada. So they had a mobile theater in a truck and they would radio and alert local TV so that they could say, okay, at 1 p.m. we'll be outside this refugee camp and at 2 p.m. we'll be here. But she said the children were also traumatized because of the targeted killings of men and boys, so much so that some of the boys were wearing their mother's dresses and accessories and coming to the dinner table that way. And their parents would say, what are you doing? And and they would say, we're doing this because we don't want to be shot. Or another boy who on a very hot day shows up at a performance wearing six T-shirts thinking, If he were to be shot, it would slow down the bullets. So the theater started working with social workers and trauma counselors to create interactive plays where the audience would engage with the actors and where the adult performers talked about how they also were traumatized. I'm imagining you came across lots of stories like this when you were researching. And this is a long preface to a question to you from a Palestinian-American poet and novelist, and also clinical psychologist and winner of the Arab-American Book Award, Hala Alian. Hi, Isabella. Hello from Hala, Alian, and little Leila in the background. I hope you're doing wonderfully. So I wanted to ask about how you take care of yourself when you're writing. You tackle, I think, such a range of topics and you go so deep into different characters psyche and especially with this recent book um well with both are our, our, you know talking about history and displacement and you know the after effects of occupation and whatnot so i'm just curious about kind of what your method is in terms of making sure that you're also caring for yourself as a storyteller and a writer and
1: a person i uh, love you thanks Halla. um I don't know that I have a method. <laughs> I think, uh, I think, um, I think community is very important to me um, and my network of friends. I think we all share it together in a way, and um, that is a great help when things are difficult, um, especially when you're not here. Not that it's still, obviously it's difficult when you're here, but there's something very weird and alienating about being outside of Palestine when stuff is um, kicking off. Like uh, I remember in May of 21 um, that there was a sort of weird dissonance that everybody here felt uh, very um, engaged and alive. Even though obviously it was incredibly violent, but there was a, a way in which people felt the joy of the unity of the working together that made them feel um sense of purpose. And I think that all of us who are outside we felt like we couldn't do anything and that was very difficult so to kind of keep knitting that um that net of community is very uh important for me psychologically personally in the writing I I don't know I mean I don't know that I have a I don't know that I, I I think that's part of the job um of being of being a novelist of being an artist is to sort of try and engage with the things that are difficult um and uh and the engagement itself is a way of processing them but I don't know that I have anything beyond that. Maybe I should. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's important to point out and to acknowledge my um, my freedom as somebody who uh, has a British passport and lives, lives outside of Palestine, outside of historic Palestine, that I'm not subject to violence on a daily basis. And therefore, um, a lot of this, you know, a lot of my feeling comes from a feeling of responsibility and duty to engage with this.
0: You mentioned early on that you were talking about cultural intifada and theater that wasn't therapeutic but was was a form of resistance did you also come across this this other form of explicitly therapeutic theater like I just described sort of this interactive theater between audience and performers
1: yeah there's a kind of model of playback theater i think that's from boal the playback theater model which is they do use in freedom theater and elsewhere which is um it, it does have a kind of therapeutic function in a sense it works through audience members telling a story to the to the actors who then perform the the scene um and the audience gets to participate to kind of decide what will happen next so it does a kind of kind of an ameliorative community function in a way but i don't know that it's cathartic in the sense of dampening down their feeling of um of, uh, of needing to resist their context mm-hmm. I think there is a, maybe a distinction to be made there between um uh, a theater that is escapist and makes you accept your the conditions in which you live and a theater that makes it possible to live at all and to feel part of a community those things are distinct I well I I'm interested obviously there's, a, there's this history uh particularly with Brecht um of being of, of an anti-cathartic theater of theater that functions kind of agitprop by uh pointing out the conditions in which the audience is living and therefore inciting them to action. I don't think that a Palestinian audience really needs that exactly to be alerted to the conditions in which they live. The conditions in which they live are very obvious. But I think that that the history of that debate I, was something that I did want to play on and I and I was kind of curious about the ancient Greek tradition the sort of the way in which catharsis in aristotle's uh, formulation about theater about tragedy is is has been difficult to translate. People have found it difficult to translate that it's some combination of um, of uh, what is it pity and terror uh, that somehow releases excess emotions. But this is a lot, there's still a lot of debate among critics and historians about what it really means. I have the feeling that it it has a kind of ritualistic function to make to make the population docile in a way that there's a kind of way in which the tragic hero is like a scapegoat that there's some some kind of function in the in the community that allows them to to keep on going and that's what that's the function there but as you will see in the book that i end up not not allowing catharsis so that was also one something that i wanted to um to draw on
0: well i wanted to take questions of censorship or distorting language to make it fit within a pre-existing narrative into questions of being a novelist. I know, for instance, you've been irritated that some reviewers of your latest book don't mention the word Palestine. And I also think of how the two French characters in the Parisian who see themselves as well-meaning have these very essentializing views of Palestine and Arabs. Dr. Molyneux, even sees Midhat as sort of a specimen of a type. And, and these two characters and their almost anthropologic interest in Arab culture as if it were a unified thing, in some ways I think prefigure the Israeli surveillance state that now treats Palestinians as such, at best as interlopers who would be best to go away to another Arab country as if each were the same as the next or at worst, all anti-Semites and potential terrorists. Cresswell, in his review of The Parisian, talks about how your first book is an argument against essentialism. And I think you could say that is true about Enter Ghost, where we get a wide range of Palestinian experiences, from the refugee camps to Israeli Palestinians to the diaspora in Europe. Even the debates within the book, feel like they keep adding more and more nuance, with Mariam, the director, saying, for instance, that Ramallah isn't a good representative of the West Bank, as most of the theater-going audience there is bourgeois and Christian, or how Sonia and Hanin's family, how even though they refused to leave Haifa and, and became Israeli citizens, they had more allegiance to the resistance than most other Israeli Arabs. But thinking about audience and readership, I think about the conversation with Hana Edi and Ahmed Mansour from the U.S. and the U.K. respectively, both saying how immense the naivete and ignorance is where they live regarding the Middle East, generally speaking, but Palestine in particular. When you say in world literature today that Enter Ghost is about image-making in and of Palestine... I imagine, given the scarcity of representation from a Palestinian point of view, that how you portray something might seem particularly freighted and pressurized. On the one hand, I think of a scene in the book where the actors are walking through what the play might mean in their context. Is Gertrude Palestine? Is Denmark Israel? And Sonia resisting this sort of one-to-one meaning-making And Mariam, the director, saying, enough with symbols, the symbols that have become tropes and sometimes cliches, the keys, the olive trees, the kefias. And I think you go to great lengths to avoid any of your characters being symbols, of your books being pedagogical tools rather than novels, that even if the Palestinian cause is virtuous, that, that doesn't mean that your Palestinian characters would all be virtuous or or only virtuous. Um, But I wondered when, say in the Parisian, you portray Palestinian politicians undercutting the uprising against the British, or in the most significant violent clash between Jews and Arabs before the Nakba, quoting some of the pilgrims as shouting, Palestine is our land, the Jews are our dogs. Even if these things are true, and add texture and nuance to your novels. I guess I wondered if you ever struggled against a desire to self-censor out of a fear of giving ammunition to those who want to essentialize, who want to say, see, they all think this way, even as your book is obviously a a demonstration of the opposite of that.
1: That is something I'm very conscious of. As you point out, it becomes part of the fabric of the books that um that they preempt a orientalist view or a pejorative view even the title of the first book it's called the parisian not the palestinian you know already trying to engage with not being symbolic not being allegorical not being representative or exemplary um which i'm conscious that as a writer in english as opposed to in arabic um i think that you're dealing with a different kind of audience. Um, even if an Arabic novel were then to be translated into English, um, you have more access to an English language market. And therefore you have certain kinds of responsibilities um, and dangers that you confront. You're, you know, you're stepping gingerly into your imagination, haunted by the possibilities that something could be misconstrued or extrapolated from, which is often what happens. Um, for example, Elena Ferrante, you could never set uh, the Neapolitan Quartet in Baghdad. You know, then this would be seen as a representative of how violent the Arabs are. There's a kind of way in which you're we're, you're always a little bit on the back foot, and you you sort of have to prove that you your um, yeah the virtuousness or the or the okayness or the the, civ- the civility of of Arab peoples because there are these preset stereotypes, preset racism, Islamophobia, etc. You know, it was it was funny with this book because I, I started writing in, in 2017, uh, in the fall of 2017, which is when I ended up setting it as well. It said it that summer. And I knew I wanted at some point for the book to center around a spectacular protest or some kind of spectacular demonstration. And that summer there had been these demonstrations around Al-Aqsa Mosque um, because the Israelis had, in violation of a, of a so-called status quo, um placed security gates around the entrance to the mosque compound. And in protest, uh, Palestinians were refusing to go through the gates and were praying in the streets instead. And This was kind of stunning, pretty extraordinary sight. Um, And so I thought, well, I'll put that back in. You know, that that will be the that will be the spectacular demonstration that I put in the novel. And then I hesitated because I am very conscious that a Western audience will see that. And we'll say, oh, it's a religious conflict. This will kind of fuel this false narrative that it's a story of Muslims against Jews rather than a settler colonial project that is practicing apartheid um, and that it has to do with land above all. Um, so that kind of consciousness made me anxious about using that. And then I thought, well, whatever, I'm just going to do it anyway. <laughs> and, then I, and then I'll figure out afterwards. Um, and the fact that the, ca- may, the, the main characters are Christian uh, and that they also participate in that demonstration allowed me to sort of feel that I, I was complicating that vision or sort of the optics of it um, for a Western audience.
0: Well, for me, thinking back to Yara's question, your decision to center an Israeli Arab family, I, I also think of Hana Edi, the Israeli Arab director, who said he was raised to believe that they, the Arabs of Israeli citizenship, would be the bridge to peace. That is, until he realized as he grew older that that wasn't true at all. But that was the narrative he was raised under growing up as a kid. The part of Enter Ghost that I love the most is the nuance around the sisters and the mystery of how our sense of self-conception is constructed and changes. They both, when they are young, are taken to the West Bank by their doctor uncle who wants them to meet a hunger striker there. And meeting the hunger striker is pivotal for them both. Hanin moves from the UK to Haifa, the city of her family, commits herself to being more politically committed through this move. And the hunger striker for Sonia is more of a ghost. She compartmentalizes her heritage as a Palestinian in London a lot more than her sister, so much so that doing Hamlet is the first time she's been in the West Bank since the encounter with the hunger striker decades ago. But as the book unfolds, the mysteries of identity and memory, I think, become more mysterious. Their, their father was very politically active when he was young, first as a communist, and then in the Al-Ard movement of Palestinian Israelis who worked to dismantle Jewish supremacy within Israel, a party that was later outlawed by the government. But when interrogated by Shinbet, the Israeli intelligence, an experience the father won't talk about to his daughters, and seeing his friend killed in Lebanon, much of his life before moving to England is shrouded in silence for his children. But Hanin knows more about her dad and about the hunger striker and other things, and some of this is surely because of differences in age, but some of it is also likely temperament, Hanin seeking the information and Sonia not so much. But one of the beautiful ways this uneasy reunion between the sisters becomes very beautiful, I think, is related to the way Hanin, who works at an Israeli university, speaks and teaches in Hebrew, the way her sister's presence, semi-unwelcome presence at the beginning, starts to unmoor her from her own self-conception of having chosen the politically committed path that her life as an Israeli citizen is starting to feel too accommodated to the state and the status quo. And then the way Sonia is changing through working under Mariam, through the conditions of simply trying to move and breathe and to, and to be in order to make a play. Um, and as you mentioned, the the sisters ultimately go to this demonstration together, which is one of the great set pieces of the book, and one where Hanin makes this connection or recognizes that the performative qualities of political protest, what they're doing together in protest, has commonalities with what Sonia does professionally on the stage. I, I want to... To stay with that scene a little more, if you could talk more about the considerations of, of placing us there, of of writing it, of giving it the space that you give, it feels really important to the book, to the individual arcs of the characters, to the connection that you make between political protest and theatricality, uh, or or theater as political protest. I guess back to Namwale Serpell talking about the two meanings of, of political theater in your in her blurb of *Enter Ghost*,
1: it's a sort of sublime moment or a kind of transcendent moment when Sonia prays, and it obviously has a—I mean, they're praying, so it has a kind of religious, spiritual feeling. Uh, even though she's not a Muslim, obviously, and she's copying her sister to work out how to how to pray, but it's also a feeling of of, of that thing of being being something larger than yourself, being um, being absorbed into a whole, and having that kind of difficult self-consciousness that Sonia is struggling with melt away and she does something that is actually very meaningful for for the first time perhaps. Um, She's participating in something that feels really meaningful that really doesn't have anything to do with her. I think that as an actor she has been using herself and there's a sort of way in which the novel is also investigating the ways in which Sonia as an actor negotiates her selfness as a material for her art, but then also something that is kind of oppressive. Actually, her selfness, and she wants to let go of it. And theatre offers that at some at certain points. Um, and this demonstration gives her that, and it and it, it's humbling, I think, as well as putting her in touch with what actually unites her with her sister, rather than what separates them, which is what they tend to focus on.
0: Well, sort of like Jean Genet when he characterized. Palestinian life, as like the Oban feast in Japan, the commemoration of the spirits of one's ancestors. And as the book suggests, that there are not just ghosts in the play Hamlet, which obviously there are, but everyone in the book has ghosts. I'm curious about the original title you wanted for Enter Ghost, the last line of Hamlet, which is, Go Bid the Soldiers Shoot, which has has a great mouthfeel to say that that phrase, (laughs) um, go bid the soldiers shoot. Tell us about how that line appeals to you as a title, why you would, I mean, we've gone from the last line to this sense of entering with Enter Ghost.
1: I mean, it appeals to me kind of intellectually. I realize that it's not such a like saleable title. I think, you know, it's it's almost like the trick last line of Hamlet. Most people remember the rest of silence or, you know, they remember Hamlet dying. But actually, at the end, there's this invasion, this imminent invasion scene where Fortinbras is about to is about to come and take Elsinore, and so that drawing on you know returning to the actually the military context of the play was something that I wanted to point out. Um, but it's also uh, I liked it. It's sort of provocative as well, which I liked, you know. And I liked the idea that the that the play itself was a was a provocation to the soldiers to shoot in a like very direct way. But uh, but it was kind of it was a it was a placeholder title, and I, I knew it would be uh, it would be rejected. And I think <laughs> Enter Ghost does. I I really like the title Enter Ghost, uh, even though I'm obviously haunted by Philip Roth, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, Is that coming up a lot?
0: The Exit Ghost. Not, Enter no, no.
1: Occasionally, someone will misname it Exit Ghost okay. instead, but it doesn't. Obviously, it doesn't really have anything to do with Exit Ghost. Right. Um. But. Yeah, I mean you know the ghosts of the previous generation I think is one of the more one of the most important things when you have a political struggle that spans a period of time that's that's longer than a single life you're always haunted by the ghosts of the of those who who went before you and what they experienced. I think there's something scare you know scary now that when you're you're losing your grandparents and you're losing that generation that actually saw the Nakba there's something a bit frightening about that loss of that that generation that witnessed it um that that feels very striking um, as we come on to, you know, is it 75 years since, since 48. And I think it's very important to hold on to those stories from the, from the grandparents' generation um, as well as, you know, haunting the future.
0: Well, I know you're working on a third novel that is a departure from Palestine as a setting. And I I wondered if you could talk to us about the desire to depart to a new setting, if there is, if, if that's even The motivating factor behind it but also talk to us about how the new book extends your interest to date or or diverges from them
1: the impulse came from wanting to think about the mid 20th century moment uh including 48 in an international context to understand anti-colonial movements in general and that time uh, and where palestine fits into them and to kind of internationalize palestine again rather than sort of exceptionalize and it also became a way of thinking about dismantling the intimacy of um, of the novel in the nation. You know the, that it always has to be in a single nation. So I've ended up working on uh, an anti or a conference that happened in Indonesia in 1955, called the Bandung Conference, uh, which was basically a regional conference, largely but it largely staged uh, a meeting of uh, recently decolonized nations and some still colonized uh, in Africa. Uh, to to essentially work on their relations with one another and to discuss what to do after after the age of empire, what to do after colonialism to protect us against something like this happening again. Put very simply, as well as an opportunity to actually air grievances, to sort of say publicly, you know, this is what we endured by the colonial powers was horrific, and um, and uh, and we look forward to working together against it in the future. And from this meeting emerged the Non-Aligned Movement and subsequently Tricontinentalism. So it actually is it's a very kind of pivotal moment in the creation of the third world as a project or an idea um, as a, as a kind of, as a third way as well uh, in the cold war, but in Western historiography, it's kind of forgotten or sidelined, I guess, because the West wasn't invited probably. So this, this meeting attracted me in the process of thinking about internationalizing Palestine in that period, as also as a way of thinking about the novel as an opportunity to think about otherness and communication across different, um, And that obviously is a very specific example of people trying to communicate across difference with one another.
0: Well, it's a pleasure being with you today, Isabella.
1: Fabulous. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure and your questions were so great. Thank you. Thank you. That's wonderful. It's such an honor to be on your podcast. I'm a big fan.
0: We are talking today to Isabella Hamad, the author of Enter Ghost. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests. Every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of Things I Discovered while preparing, things referenced during the conversation, places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the bonus audio archive, which now includes Isabella Hamad's reading of political prisoner Walid Dhaka's letter, Parallel Time, or the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. To a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. Find out more at patreon.com between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMayo, Elisa Oge in the book division, Beth Steidle in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jane Michelle in publicity, Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin house writers workshops finally I'd like to thank Emre Labrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro their album Imre Labrog a me can be found on iTunes Barbara Browning's Trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning